0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. All right, let's dive in. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we come to it with expectant hearts, Lord, with expectant minds, wanting you to speak to us and wanting to hear what you have for us. Lord, we want to be instructed. But more than that, we want to be transformed. We want to be encouraged. And we want to see Jesus more clearly than we ever have and understand why the gospel is such good news. Lord, would you encourage us, instruct us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, some of the greatest books that have ever been written uh, begin with kind of epic opening lines. Maybe you can think of some. I've got a few here for you that you might be familiar with, like a Tale of Two Cities. It begins with this line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Epic, right? Another one you might know, Moby Dick begins with the line, call me Ishmael. I like this one from uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. He says, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it, right? That's a good line. Now, even the Bible begins with an epic opening line, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you would expect that when you open up to the New Testament, which tells the story of Jesus, which is really the culmination of everything the Bible's been building up to, surely the New Testament is going to have an epic opening line. So what do we find when we open up to the first page of the first chapter, the first verse of the New Testament? What does it say? Here's what it says. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'll tell you what, if there's one thing that gets people pumped up about the Bible, is the genealogies. Am I right? Like, who doesn't love reading a good list of names that you can't pronounce of people you've never met before? It's kind of like reading the, going to a foreign country and reading the phone book, right? Like, it's uh, it's not really what gets people that excited about reading the Bible. So you kind of wonder, like, if, if this is the greatest story ever told, right? The story of Jesus. And doesn't it deserve to have, like, a better opening line than here's a genealogy, right? Uh, except, here's what I want to show you today. This line actually is exciting. It is incredible, and I want to show you why. Here's why. Because this line, when we read this, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does this tell us? It tells us this, that Christmas was not the beginning of God's plan to save us, plan for our salvation. Rather, Christmas was the culmination of many things that God had been doing throughout a very long period of time, going all the way back to the time of Abraham, going all the way back to the time of King David. You see, what this verse is telling us here at the beginning of the New Testament is that in order to fully appreciate who Jesus is, you cannot appreciate who Jesus is. You cannot understand Christmas unless you understand everything that led up to this moment... And that's what our current series is all about. We've been in a series called The Promise of a Savior. And for the season of Advent, which is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we have been taking a journey through the Bible, looking at some of the promises that God made throughout history, which led up to the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus on that very first Christmas. So today, we're going to continue that journey. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that the promised Savior would be a king Descended from David, who is God, come to us. Every week I give you a sentence. This is your sentence for today. We'll put that up on the screen. The promised Savior would be a king descended from David, who is also God come to us. So let's take that sentence. Go ahead, and, you know, you might want to write it down, take a picture of it, memorize it. That sentence serves as our summary for the message, but it also serves as our outline by which we're going to study our text. So take that sentence and now let's break it down as we work our way through our text. First of all, the promised Savior. Let's talk about that first. We're reading the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, the very famous Christmas story. You're probably familiar with it. What we read is that a group of angels appeared to some shepherds who were out in their field watching their flocks by night. And here's what these angels said to these shepherds. They said, We bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that begs the question, Why was this angelic announcement such good news? And for us, personally, why is Christmas something worth celebrating, something worth rejoicing over? In order to understand that question, you have to understand who Jesus is and why Jesus needed to come. And that's what we've been doing in the series. So in the first study in the series, we went all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the story of creation. And we saw there how our very first ancestors rebelled against God. And as a result of their rebellion, sin and death entered this world. God's good creation and all of us were tainted. We were affected by that rebellion. And we saw, though, that at that time, as sin and death entered the world, God made a promise. His promise was that he would not leave it that way. He wouldn't leave us stuck in this mess that we had created. Instead, he would send us a Savior to save us from this mess that we are in. And here's his promise. His promise was that the Savior would be a person, a person, This would be the salvation. Salvation would come through a person. And this person would come, and he would crush the head of Satan under his foot and set us free from the curse of sin and death. Well, over time, there was kind of a progressive revealing of different things throughout history little nuggets here and there as history went on, of who this Savior would be and what he would do in order to save us. So in our study last week, we fast-forwarded a little bit in history, and we saw another big reveal, which was that this promised Savior, not only would he be a person, but he would be a ruler who would come from the Jewish tribe of Judah, Well, today, we're going to fast forward again in history to another big reveal, another big revelation that God gave about who this promised Savior would be. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence. The promised Savior would be a king descended from David. So that brings us to our text here, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It begins with these words, Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king being spoken of here is King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. That's interesting that we think of David as the greatest king that Israel ever had, because David was not the most powerful king. That Israel ever had. There were times in Israel's history when they were more powerful than during the reign of David. David was also not the most wealthy king of Israel. And if we look at his life, we we have to admit that he was definitely not a perfect person by any means. But what made David great was that David had a heart for God. He sincerely loved God. He was truly surrendered to God to the point where God looked at David and he said, that is a man after my own heart. Well, here's David, the man after God's own heart. And at this point in his life, we read that he is living in a house. Now, that's actually a big deal, because prior to this, we read about how David built himself a magnificent palace. He had, he had taken over the city of Jerusalem and made that the capital city of a united Israel after they had had a civil war. And he built himself this palace made of cedar. You see, for the first time in literally centuries, ever since Israel came out of Egypt, they had never faced a time, or they had never had a time of peace and prosperity until now. Think about it. They came out of Egypt, and after they came out of Egypt, they were poor and they were at war for hundreds of years. And now, for the first time in their history, here they are experiencing peace and prosperity. The king, David, is living in a palace in Jerusalem, and so verse 2 tells us this, the king, David, said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So here's David hanging out in this palace, and one day he looks outside, and he notices something. The ark of the covenant is being housed in a tent Being housed in a tent. Now, let me just remind you, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was a box that was covered in gold, and it was considered the most sacred object in all of Judaism. This Ark of the Covenant, it housed the two stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments had been written during the time of Moses. This Ark of the Covenant, it was to be placed inside the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle or the temple, the place where sacrifices took place. And what the Ark of the Covenant represented, it literally represented the throne of God on earth. It was often referred to as the glory of God, the representation of God's presence and glory here on earth among the people. So the reason the Ark of the Covenant was being housed in a tent at this time and not in the tabernacle is because if you remember a while back, we read in First and Second Samuel that the Philistines at one point had come and attacked Israel, and they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. They took it with them. Now, the Israelites were able to get it back, but they were afraid that it would get stolen again in another attack. So they brought it to Jerusalem, where it could be safe, because Jerusalem was their fortified city, their, their safest place to keep it. So they said, we can't afford having the Ark of the Covenant get stolen again. They bring it to Jerusalem, and they needed to put it in somewhere so they built a a tent to house it in. Now, understand, here's David. He's standing in his palace, his his royal palace made of cedar, which at that time was very extravagant. And he looks out across Jerusalem, and he sees this tent that houses the Ark of the Covenant. And something bothers him about that. Here he is living in this extravagant palace, and the glory of God, right, the, the throne of God, is dwelling in a flimsy, tent. And so David says, I can't let this go on. You know what? I need to do something. So David comes up with a plan. Here's his plan. He will build a temple, a house for the Lord. It says in verse 3, Nathan the prophet listened to David's plan, and he told him, go for it, David. The Lord is with you. So David goes to sleep that night, his mind is full of plans for this house he's going to build for the Lord, but that very same night, verses 4 and 5 tell us that God spoke to Nathan the prophet in a dream, and God told Nathan, hey, you spoke too early. I actually don't want David to build me a temple or a house. But, but that wasn't the only thing that God told Nathan the prophet to tell to David the king. Although God's answer to David was, no, you cannot build me a house, God was still very pleased. He was honored by the fact that David wanted to do something great for the Lord. And so it says in verse 11 that God told Nathan the prophet, tell David, he's not going to build me a house, but instead I am going to build him a house. Now understand, this is a bit of a play on words. When David used the word house, he's talking about a literal building made of stone but when God used the word house he's using it in in the sense of a dynasty i don't know about you guys but i've been watching the crown on netflix i love that show and it's all about the house of windsor which is the british royal family and so this idea of a house in the sense of a dynasty is the way that God is using the term now israel had never had a dynasty before so this is a huge honor that david's family is going to have this legacy of having a dynasty but that's not all God then revealed something even bigger, something even greater about this. It says in verse 13, God told David that one of his descendants, for one of his descendants, here's what he said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a pretty long time, right? Forever. And and by the way, who's ever heard of a king and a kingdom that lasts forever? Here's what's really interesting. In Psalm 102, the Bible says this, God created the world but the world is not going to last forever. The world is not going to last forever. There will come a time when the world is going to end. And that actually is something that our our modern science backs up. Basically, if you look at science, here's what it says, that if nothing else happens, eventually the sun will burn up and life on earth will end. In other words, a kingdom that lasts forever must be a kingdom which lasts beyond this world. Beyond this world. Now, verse 16, God repeats the promise one more time, but understand this. What God is promising David is that the promised Savior, the one who will save us from the curse of sin and death, the ruler who will come from the tribe of Judah, he will be a king who will be descended from King David, and he will rule and reign over an eternal kingdom. In order to do that, you know what that means? It means that he must give us eternal life. Eternal life. See, when David hears this promise, you know how David reacts? Look at it there in the end of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says this, David hears this promise, and he praises the Lord. He's overjoyed. He's, he's ecstatic. Why? Because this is not only the promise of a legacy for David. This is the promise of salvation for David and for others. This is the promise of salvation. This promise means that somehow the curse of death is going to be abolished. There will be life that lasts forever. There will be hope beyond the grave. And this promised Savior will come from David's family line, which is why the New Testament begins with what truly is an epic opening line. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is why throughout the Bible it's about throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, about 20 times, Jesus is referred to as the Son of David. Listen, if you were a Jewish person at the time of Jesus and somebody came up to you and said, hey, guess what? The promised Savior has been born. You know what the first thing you would have said was? Let me see his genealogy. Let me see his genealogy. I need to see it because it if he's not qualified, then let's not talk about this guy anymore. Let's just move on. Before we can even consider I- anything else, we need to know is this person legitimately the heir to David's throne? You see, the Christmas story begins with the genealogy. Why? Because Jesus came as the fulfillment of God's promise that the Savior would be a king descended from David. And friends, just on a personal note, let me say this. God always keeps his promises. That's what the season of Advent reminds us of, that God has kept his promises in the past, and therefore we can be certain that he will keep his promises in the future as well. That's really important for us to remember, especially in difficult, trying, unstable times like the times that we are living in right now. There's a great verse at the end of the book of Joshua. Book of Joshua, by the way, tells the story of how the people of Israel came to dwell in and live in the promised land. And here's what it says at the end of the book of Joshua as it tells us the story of how they came to dwell in the land. I love this verse. It says this. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All of them came to pass. And friends, let me tell you what. That is true when it comes to your life as well. God keeps his promises. And God has given us some incredible promises. For example, he promised that he would establish his church and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. That's a pretty important promise to remember right now with all the doom and gloom that's out there in the news, right? If you just watch the news, you'd be tempted to think otherwise. But then you remember the promise of God right? That he has established his church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. God has promised other things as well. He has promised that if you are his, he will cause all things, even the things we're going through right now, to work together for your good and for his glory and his purposes. God has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. He has promised that if you are his, he has his grip on you and he will not let the evil one snatch you out of his hand. He has promised that the good work that he has begun in your life, he will see it through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, the birth of Jesus shows us that God keeps his promises. That's the message of Advent. God has been faithful to keep his promises so far, and therefore we can be certain that he will continue to be faithful to keep all of his promises as we take his hand and walk with him. Well, let me, let me just bring you back to something we talked about just a minute ago. How is it possible that the promised Savior would be a descendant of David, which, by the way, means he will be a human person, and yet he will live and rule as king forever? Well, that brings us to the next thing that God told us about this promised Savior and the end of our sentence here. The promised Savior would be a king descended from David who is also God come to us. Listen, when Jesus came to earth, there were three titles, three primary titles that were used of him. You've probably read them if you've read the Bible. Son of David, he was also called the Son of God, And he's also called the Son of Man. These three titles are found throughout the New Testament. Now, we've talked about what the title Son of David means, right? It means that he's descended. He's the the promised Savior who descends from David. But what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? That's a pretty important question, actually. Let me tell you why that's such an important question, that we need to know what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's what it says in the Gospel of John. At the end of the Gospel of John, the writer John tells us this, all these things that I have written, I wrote them so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So apparently, The way to have eternal life is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Everything that was written in the gospel was written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's how you have eternal life. So it's pretty important that we figure out what this actually means so that we can believe it, right? So what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, one common assumption is actually to assume that Son of God means that Jesus is divine or that Jesus is God. there's a problem with that. There's actually several problems with that. Here's the problem. Maybe you've wondered about this yourself as you've thought about this. If Jesus is God, then why is he called the Son of God? Does, Does that mean that he's somehow less than God or descended from God or derived or created by God? Does it mean that Jesus is half God, half human Now, some people have come to those exact conclusions because they have misunderstood what the name Son of God means. So what does it mean? Here's what it means. The term Son of God primarily refers to the fact that Jesus is King. It means that Jesus is King. Let me explain that to you. Here's why. Because in the ancient Near East, the ancient Middle East— kings were thought to have a special relationship with God. Most of the ancient Near East cultures actually believed that their kings were gods. Now, the Jews did not believe that. No way. You know, that would have been anathema to them. They would, they did not believe that their kings were God. But they did believe that the king had a special relationship with God. And let me show you this, and you might mark this down, write it down, check it out in your Bible right now. Look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. And what that means is that Psalm 2 was read aloud at the coronation of every king of Israel. They would read this aloud. And I want to read to you part of Psalm 2. Here's what it says. And again, this would be read aloud at the coronation of all the kings of Israel. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now remember, this was read at the coronations of all the kings of Israel. In other words, the term son of God was a title that was given to the kings of Israel. So the, yeah, so to call Jesus the son of God is to acknowledge that he is a king. In fact, it is to acknowledge that to say that he is the son of God, not just a son of God, is to say that he is the king, the king of kings, the king to end all kings, the promised savior king who would be the ultimate king who would rule and reign forever. Now, Maybe some of you find that a little bit, I don't know, disappointing, because you've always assumed that Son of God means that Jesus is God. Well, hang on. Listen, this is not to say that Jesus is not God. The Bible clearly teaches that, and let me show you this. Let's talk about the meaning of the term Son of Man. This is one that I think a lot of people don't understand, but we should, and I'll tell you why. Jesus used this term to refer to himself 88 times in the Bible. Eighty-eight times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man was Jesus's preferred title when he spoke of himself. And Son of Man, uh, he used, Jesus used this term to speak of himself more than any other term. He called himself the Son of Man. Now, a lot of people assume that by calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is somehow downplaying or diminishing the fact that he is God. But let me show you what the Son of Man means. And people often ask, right, if Jesus is the Son of God, why does he keep calling himself the Son of Man? Well, here's the answer. The term Son of Man is a messianic title which comes from a prophecy in the book of Daniel, from the prophet Daniel. So it's a messianic title which comes from a prophecy from the book of Daniel. And this prophecy is found in Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read it to you, verses 13 and 14. Here's what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, this prophecy, doesn't that sound very similar to the one that was given in 2 Samuel to David about the king who was going to come, who would be descended from David? Listen, by calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to this prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, and that's important, and here's why. This prophecy tells us that the promised Savior already existed before he was born, in human flesh into this world. He already existed. Now, listen, you did not exist before you were conceived in your mother's womb, but this promised Savior did exist before he was born into the world. Now, how is that possible? It's only possible if this promised Savior was actually God himself who would be born in human flesh and walk upon the earth. And this is why it's so interesting. Understand this. By calling himself Son of Man, Jesus is actually asserting that he is God. Again, many people assume just the opposite. They think Son of Man is downplaying Jesus' deity, or, you know, contradicting it. No, no, just the opposite. Son of Man is actually Jesus asserting, referring to this prophecy, and asserting that He is God come to earth. Now, this isn't the only prophecy that tells us that the promised Savior would be God Himself come to us. Check out Isaiah chapter 9, which is actually our main text for today. Isaiah chapter 9, and here are the incredible words we read, starting in chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Listen, who are these people who dwell in a land of darkness? Guys, that's us. That is you and me. We all live our lives under the cloud of darkness and death. It looms over us like a cloud. There are so many beautiful things in this world, and yet they are tainted by the curse of darkness and death. We all know that no matter how much we love something or we love someone, it will not last. One day, everything will be taken from us. Our bodies are susceptible to sickness and eventually death will swallow each of our lives and the lives of those we love. But here's the good news. For people, us, who walk in a land of deep darkness. A light has shone. What is this light that is shown upon us who live under the cloud of darkness and death? Well, it tells us in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The hope for you and me who live under the shadow of death is that one day a child would be born. That same child who was promised to David, the king descended from David, who would rule over an eternal kingdom, which means that he will provide eternal life. How will this be possible? We're told here in verse 6 that although this would be a human child, he would be like no other child who had ever been born before. He would be the mighty God born as a child. He would be the everlasting father born in human flesh. In other words, this promised Savior would be God himself come to us to save us. Now, Fast forward with me again, if you will. Back to the first chapter of the New Testament, the story of the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, we read, starting in verse 18, now this is how the birth of Jesus happened. We read that an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream at night and told him that his wife who he was betrothed to, Mary. There was a child in her womb, and this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And here's what the angel told Joseph. In my opinion, this is one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. In verse 21 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Guys, do you know what the name Jesus means in Hebrew? It means God saves. God saves. And Jesus was to be given this name, God saves, because that is who he was. God come to us to save us. And what did he come to save us from? The angel told Joseph, he comes to save us from our sins. It goes on to say there in Matthew chapter 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the, the writer John, the apostle, he introduces Jesus to us in this way. He says that Jesus was the Word. That's what he calls Jesus, the Word. And he says, the Word, Jesus, was God. But you know what else he says? Starting in verse 14, he says, the Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. You know what's even more interesting uh, about what John says there? The word that, that John uses there for dwelt, when he says that God dwelt among us, the word that used, that's used there, actually literally means to dwell in a tent to dwell in a tent. So what he's saying is that in the person of Jesus, God came and dwelt among us, and the glory of God was visible to us. But again, the word John uses there, it means to dwell in a tent. You know that the Bible refers to our earthly bodies as being like tents? You know why? Because what is a tent? It's a temporary dwelling place. And you know what tents do? They get worn out, They don't last. That's what our earthly bodies are like. And God came to us. He was born into an earthly body, a tent like the ones that we dwell in. But I want you to think about that for a second. The glory of God dwelling in a tent. Does that remind you of anything? Does it remind you, for example, of the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem being housed in a tent and when David wanted to build a house for the Lord, God said, David, you need to understand, I am perfectly happy having my glory dwell in a tent here on earth because this world is temporary but one day I am going to come to you, and I am going to build you a house. I will build you a permanent dwelling place that lasts forever, something that has real foundations and has real substance. And the way I will do it, God says, is by coming to you in order to save you from your sins. Jesus's name means God saves And the good news of the gospel is that God has come to you. He has come to us in the person of Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to save us from our sins. Listen, no matter how hard you try to be good, you can never be good enough. All of us have fallen short. And as a result, the the dark cloud of sin and death looms over all of our lives but the good news of the gospel is that to us who dwell under the shadow of death, a light has shone, a child has been born, the king has come, and not just any king, but God himself, the only one who has the power to save. Jesus came, and he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father on your behalf. The life that you should have lived but have failed to live, he lived it for you on your behalf. And he hung on the cross to take the judgment that you deserved for the wrong things that you've done, and he rose from the grave to make a way for you to have eternal life in his eternal kingdom. That is his gift to you because he loves you and the way to receive it is by trusting in him rather than trusting in yourself. That's what it means to have faith. It means that rather than trusting in yourself, rather than trusting in your own goodness, rather than trusting in your own abilities, you trust in Jesus, his ability, his goodness, and what he has done in order to save you. And as you do that, God will be faithful to keep his promises to you as you trust in him. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.